Uh, before, I, <clears throat> before I begin and talk about our summer series and what we're doing, I just want to make, uh, just uh, maybe especially relevant today, that there are scads of news stories in our world. And there are wonderful things happening and horrible things happening, and the news, the news uh, really talks about the horrible things more than the wonderful things, doesn't it? And there's a temptation in the church to be constantly addressing as a way to be relevant those things that are going on in the world. And you know what? There are places to talk about those things. But our most important thing is to continually lean on the unchanging story of who God is throughout the chaos of our world. It's not irrelevant to focus on this book chiefly when things are in chaos out there. In fact, this is the most relevant thing we can possibly do. So as we talk about faith and faithfulness today, I just want to encourage you that it's a matter of faithfulness to keep preaching the Bible in season and out of season all the time for us. This is part of our mission as a church. So let me talk about our summer series and what we're going to be doing for these next coming months. We're going to talk about characters in the Old Testament. We're going to go each week through a different character in the Old Testament. We're starting today with Abraham and Sarah. Next week, we'll have Isaac and Rebecca and on through. We'll just do a sampling. We won't do every character because the summer's not that long. Uh, But you can dip in and out and kind of follow us as we work our way uh, kind of chronologically through these weeks. And as as we get into this and kind of before this, I want to say some brief words about how it is that we read the Bible. Uh, and there's a formal word for this. I'm going to talk for a moment about something called narrative theology, um, which is, I think, important for us. Now, it's often said as a kind of argument against Christian that the Bible contains a lot of bad characters. And sometimes they make a joke like, you know, the Bible's a book that should be banned. Have you considered all the murderers and people who commit assaults? And the, 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 there's a lot of bad figures in the Bible. This isn't actually a good moral book for people to read. And in some ways, they're right. Um, but while the Bible, uh, there are parts of the Bible that do tell us how to act, there are legitimate parts that say you should do this or should not do this, uh, when it talks about people, about characters, it almost never tells you to emulate those people. Instead, it presents really complex people and then invites you to make wise judgments. The Bible contains a lot of complex people, not a lot of simple people. And so it exposes you to diverse characters and invites you to make wise judgments about those characters. And maybe the brief kind of summary theological point is that there's only one good character in the Bible, and that's God. Everybody else is messed up. Nobody's a hero in the Bible. And the only person you're really supposed to emulate is Jesus. And so as we study these characters, I want you to learn from them, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be models for our behavior in the same kind of way. So let me say this again. The only good character in the Bible is God and Jesus. Everybody else is broken and probably should be in therapy. Okay? So it's a messy group. So this week we're going to talk about Abraham and his wife Sarah, who are two foundational figures for the Bible, and we're going to talk about faith. So let me give you a brief snapshot overview, kind of bird's eye view of Abraham's life, and then we'll talk about the lessons we can learn about faith. So Abraham is born by the name Abram, Abram, okay? He gets a name change, a lot of people do, in a region called Ur of the Chaldeans. This is, if, you've, um, if you remember your ancient history, this is in Mesopotamia, the land between the rivers, the Fertile Crescent, kind of the origins of, um, origins of humanity in a lot of these accounts. Uh, this very ancient, very um, fertile area where modern-day Babylon is about the place, probably in Iraq. And so Abram is born there, and from there he's called by God. 
He uproots his life, and he moves with his wife, uh, Sarai. She also gets a new name later. And his nephew, whose name is Lot, and they move from Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, kind of in a southwesterly route to Canaan, which will become modern-day Palestine. So he's a herdsman. He wanders about. He engages with lots of different people and figures along the way, kind of meets the who's who of the ancient world. And God makes a promise. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation, but as Abraham gets older and older, no child is forthcoming. And there's some tension in the story. So Sarai gets a little impatient with God's plan as she concocts a plot to get a child. So she has Abram sleep with her handmaiden, Hagar, and this succeeds. And they have a child named Ishmael, but the child makes um, Sarah kind of hate Hagar and Ishmael. And the end result is that Abram has to send both the child and its mother away. So they reject the child. It's really bitter. So God again stresses to Abram, speaks to him and says, I am going to make you into a nation. He even renames him from Abram to Abraham. Um, Abram means exalted father, and Abraham means father of a multitude. So his name means father of a multitude, and he's a 100-year-old guy with no kids. So there's some tensions here. So it says that when Sarah was finally nearing 100, she finally conceives, which for some of you may be a shock. Okay. And when the angel announces this news, it says that she laughs. Ha! Now that I am old and worn out, will the Lord give me this blessing? And the angel listening hears her laugh and says, oh, you laughed. And so you're going to name the kid Laughter. And so his name is Isaac, which means he laughs. A sense of mirth at God's provision. And then in what is one of the most troubling stories in the entire Bible, at the very end of Abraham's life, nearing the very end, God asks him to sacrifice Isaac. And he goes through with it until the last moment when God stays his hand and a substitute offering is given in his place. So in some ways, everything in the Bible begins with Abraham. The whole story of the Bible in some ways really begins, I mean, uh, the Bible really kicks off in Genesis chapter 12 when Abram is called. The first 11 chapters of Genesis have this kind of like broad, sweeping, almost mythic quality. And then in chapter 12, you get, and then God spoke to this guy. And from that point on, it's this different level of engagement with the Lord dealing with people. He makes promises to Abram, you will become a great nation, and these really come to fulfillment in Christ. So the promise God makes to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 and verses 1 and 2, which we'll read in a minute, those promises are fulfilled in the distant, distant child of Abraham, Jesus, as this goes on. And so Abraham then um, gets elevated as a kind of model of faith. And we won't read these passages this morning, but another time I encourage you to look at Romans chapter 4 and see what Paul says about the faith of Abraham there. Or we may read it at the very end, but uh, Hebrews chapter 11, there's some stuff about the faith of Abraham in that passage that talks about the hall of faith in some ways. So today what I want to do is talk about how Abraham shows us faith both in its success and its failure. His life illustrates faith for us, both in success and failure. And I've got four lessons in faith for us this morning. So lesson one in faith is this, is that Abraham's faith is seen in his obedience. Abraham's faith is seen, you perceive it, in his obedience. Let's unpack this for a moment. And let's actually begin with the passage of Scripture. Genesis chapter 11, verse 27, through to verse, chapter 12 and verse Five. So here's what the author of Genesis writes. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah is Abraham's dad. Terah became the father of Abraham, uh, Abram, excuse me, Nahor and Haran. 
and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abraham, Abram his son, I'm going to mess that up a bunch, sorry, Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran, the grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan, and they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth, as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Now, Abram's faith, I said, is seen in his obedience. And chapter 12, verse 1 says, God says, go forth, and Abram goes forth. He does what God asks. It's a very simple exchange, but I don't want you to overlook a very important aspect of this. It's very significant. He heard God and then uprooted everything in his life in response to that. Now, linguistically, there's a huge overlap between some of the words that are in this passage. In fact, in the ancient world, these are pretty common. So uh, the Greek word for to hear is akuo. You can, all of you can read Greek, so this is fine. And the Greek word for obey is hupakuo. You can hear they're almost the same word, akuo, hupakuo. When you hear something and you do something, these are very similar things. In fact, in Hebrew, there's only one word for hearing and obeying. It's Shema. Some of you know from Deuteronomy 6, the Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The same word, obey Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. There's only one word for hearing and obedience because these are the very similar ideas in the ancient world. Uh, the name Samuel is Shemuel, God hears. There's something about God responding. Now, it's intrinsic. And the New Testament itself um, leverages this linguistic overlap explicitly in some passages. A passage, for example, like John 3.36, where hearing and obedience is put together. So John writes, speaking of Jesus, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, believes, he who places his trust. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Do you see that belief and obedience are put parallel as antonyms? If you're believing, you're obeying. If you're disobeying, you're not believing. It's the same kind of linguistic idea going back and forth here, but the wrath of God abides in him, John says. But what do we know about Abraham? He heard and he obeyed. And his obedience was how you see his faith. You witness it because of that obedience. And this is a very simple point I want to make, is that our faith as well is only seen when we obey. If faith doesn't appear when God speaks. It's not created out of thin air uh, this is the same thing I've been saying when we quote Ephesians 1, 13, and 14, is that you hear the good news, but then you have to believe it, and then you're sealed. And the believing is manifest in a life of obedience. Let me see if I can give you another example to make this clear. Uh, author Anne Lamott, in her book, All New People, she muses on one of the Buddhist koans. You guys know what a Buddhist koan is? It's a, an impenetrable phrase. 
It's a question that's not supposed to have an answer. And the phrase she muses on is, what's the sound of one hand clapping? Now, the purpose of a Buddhist koan is to break your head, right? You're not supposed to be able to answer it. And it's supposed to help you escape from your traps of dualist thinking. You can get into non-dualist thinking. But Lamont muses that there is actually an answer to the puzzle given by some. And the answer is the form of another question. What is the sound of the rain falling? And the answer is nothing until it hits something. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Nothing until it hits something. Now, when I propose to you, the same thing is true of faith. What's the sound of shape of faith? Nothing until you obey. You will hear it. You will see it. When it meets something else, it meets, in effect, your obedience. Now, with that in mind, I want to stress that God is continuing to speak today to us. He's calling us. He's asking us for things. He's requesting faith from us, and our faith will show up when we Obey him in these things. To some of you, he's saying, I want you to serve me in this way. I don't know what the way is, but he's calling you and he's nudging you. And in faith, you need to say, yes, Lord. And then you'll have faith. And some of you, maybe he's saying, I really want you to become a Christian and follow me forever. And faith isn't about having a kind of supercharged emotional sense. It's about saying, okay, I'll do what you ask, God. And some of you, maybe he's saying, I really want you to get baptized. And faith is saying, stepping into the yes of obeying God in these moments. And faith really is as simple as saying yes to God. And sometimes I hear people say the phrase, I feel like I don't have enough faith for these things. And I want to suggest to you that if this is the way faith works, that what you really lack is probably just obedience. It's not about having the right kind of emotional content. It's about being able to say yes when the Almighty speaks because Abraham heard and he did it. Okay, that's lesson number one, faith seen in his obedience. Here's lesson number two. Abraham's faith is seen when he trusts God's power while the outlook is bleak. Okay, when I, when I built this slideshow, I liked the way that bleak hung at the bottom, bleak and alone. I thought there was kind of a metaphor for how bleak it is. Okay, faith is seen when he trusts God's power, even when the outlook is bleak. Look with me again at just these few verses. Genesis 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. What a great promise. I will make you huge, he says. But just before this, we heard a verse that communicates tension, Genesis 11 and verse 30, where it says, Sarai was barren. She had no child. Not that she just had no child. She was barren, unable to produce children. There's tension here. I'm going to make you huge. And he's saddled with a wife who can't produce anything. So what do we do with this? Let's make the contrast even more explicit. Because they didn't know how kids were created in the ancient world. It's not like they were just ignorant of the facts. In a barnyard culture, there are few sexual mysteries. Okay. We, we are preserved from this because we've removed our farmland from our, far away from us. It's a very different world. And this is what we call a pretty bleak outlook. Let's enhance the complexity. Abraham is 75 years old at this point. 75, and Sarah with him. It's going to be a further 25 years before he and his wife conceive. You get the promise at 75, I'm going to make, you're going to have so many kids, you'll be a whole nation on your own. You're 75, you're looking at your 75-year-old wife thinking, okay, this is likely. 
And you're going to wait 25 years, and then finally it's going to happen? This is a very long period of delay. But God made a command, and he made a promise. The command was go, and Abraham went, according to this. And he made a promise, I will make you great, and there is waiting. A quarter century of waiting. And Abraham's faith is seen when he trusts God's power while the outlook gets bleaker and bleaker and bleaker. And during that quarter century, the likelihood of the promise being fulfilled decreases year by year. So there's a sub-lesson within this I want to talk about, and that's this, is that faith becomes faithfulness when we cling to God's promises in difficult circumstances. The faith is that initial obedience, but faithfulness is when you're clinging to that promise while the circumstances around you begin to look worse and worse and worse. It's trusting God in the midst of very difficult and frustrating and even even life-sucking experiences. There's a few verses I want us to point to about this. I want to point out the fact that faithfulness means holding God's perspective in trying times. Faithfulness means clinging to the God's way of thinking about the world, even when the world seems to be going crazy around us. Let's look at Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. The proverb writer writes, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the holy is understanding. Reverencing the Lord and knowing His ways is the beginning of being wise in the world. Knowledge of the holy. This is what we want. So this is the beginning of faithfulness, is trying to know what His thoughts are. Faithfulness means making choices based on God's ethics when the world urges us to make choices based on its ethics. Faithfulness means clinging to those difficult ethics the Lord has revealed in his book for the world. And it won't always be easy. Another verse, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. A lot of ways that look good at the moment, look really slick and clean, and they could make us popular and make things easy for us. But the proverbist writes this to say, it seems right at the moment, but in the end, it leads to death. And faithfulness means standing on the ground that's anchored on God. And a third thing faithfulness means is that it means that we become people of our word because God is a person of his word. It means keeping your word even when it hurts. Malachi 3.6 says this, because I, the Lord, do not change, you descendants of Jacob have not been destroyed. Your entire existence depends on the fact that God keeps his word. He doesn't change like we change. And we are asked to be faithful people, faithful to the words that we make, because God is faithful. This is why in the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't swear an oath, just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Because we're faithful people in the image of a God who is faithful. And when he says yes, he means it. And when he says no, he means it. We're like God in this. Or to be like God in this, excuse me. All right, let's do the third lesson together. Third lesson is this. Abraham's faith fails when he takes matters into his own hands. His faith fails, and it fails because he takes matters into his own hands. So Abraham's story is really not one of unremitting success. We're going to look now at Genesis uh, chapter 16, uh, verses 1 through 6. So it says that now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. Duh. And she had an Egyptian maid whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, Now behold, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I will obtain children through her. Very mechanically described, by the way. And after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Cabram, Abram's wife Sarai took Hagar the Egyptian, her maid, and gave her to her husband Abram as a wife. He went into her, Hagar, and she conceived. And when when she saw she conceived, her mistress was despised in her sight. 
And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be upon you. (laughs) So in other words, you do this, husband. It's your fault. I gave my maid into your arms, but when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her sight. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarai treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now, Abram knows God's promise, knows that he's promised to make him a great nation. Sarai does the calculation, realizes that it's not just the biological clock is ticking, it's expired. Okay? It's not working at all. So they come up with a solution. Now, I should note that on my read of the ancient Near Eastern culture, this solution isn't all that out of the ordinary. It seems like there are some really flexible family relationships between your, you, the powder familias in the household, and sexual relationships between these people. And so Abram would ex- be expected to have multiple wives and multiple concubines. And remember, like I said at the beginning, just because it's in the Bible doesn't mean it's right doesn't mean you're supposed to emulate it in these In fact, every story of a marriage, multiple marriages in the Old Testament ends badly. There is no multiple marriage story where the husband with multiple wives has a good time. Everybody has a bad time. So if you're thinking about it, don't. Okay. Now, an important kind of subtext is that instead of listening to God at this point, Abram listens to Sarai. God said, I'm going to do this for you, and Sarai comes up with a plan, and so he listens to her, and he effectively obeys her in this. And the plan works. Hagar conceives. And so the barrenness really is confirmed to be Sarah's problem. But in the wake of the plan, Hagar despises Sarai, and Sarai despises Hagar, and there's uh, trouble in the house. So instead of waiting on God's power, they attempt an earthly solution. The result is an earthly success, and the Ishmaelites are born, and they themselves become a great nation, but they're not the nation promised by God. And the end result of the story, I haven't read it this morning, is because of the family dynamics and because of sin, is that Abram will send Hagar and Ishmael away. He rejects this surrogate wife and child, and they create incredible pain and brokenness. So here's another sub-lesson that we can learn from Abraham. When we disobey God, we don't treat other people very well. When we turn our back on obeying God, the result is often that we treat other people really, really poorly. Now, this is true in a lot of ways, because sin in one area often leads to sin in other areas of our lives. It's not like we have one little private corner of sin that we can hold on to. It, It has tendrils. It works its way out. It's like dandelion seeds. You blow on them and they go everywhere. You think it was just the blowing of the wind that created the problem, but you've got all this scattered stuff. And I think it's important to note that God's laws in the Old Testament aren't primarily about making him happy. It's not that God gave us laws because he's like, I'll be really happy if you do all these things for me. The laws in the Old Testament are really about protecting the community and one another. As my friend and one of my teachers, Rick Watts, says, he says, Torah, the books of the law, aren't about Torah keeping, it's about people keeping. The purpose of the law isn't to keep the law. The purpose of the law is to protect your neighbor. And sin is that violation of your neighbor. To put this another way, when we turn our back on God, we inevitably turn our back on our neighbor as well. We can't do it. And the parallel lesson to this is also this. When we disobey God, we cause ourselves and others great pain. Hurts you, hurts your neighbor, as exhibited right here with Abram disobeying God and then causing great pain not only to Hagar but his child. 
And I want to suggest to you that obeying God may look painful in the moment, but not obeying God is always more painful. Maybe I should say that again. Obeying God may look painful in the moment, but not obeying him is always going to be more painful. Okay, fourth lesson, final lesson for this morning. Abraham's faith is sealed when he entrusts God with all his outcomes. His faith is sealed when he entrusts God with all his outcomes. So let me turn to the story of the offering of Isaac, and let me just read the first three verses of Genesis chapter 22 for you now. Now, it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, here I am. God said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, right? So really focusing down on who this child is, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. Now, I'll gesture to the story. I won't read the whole text for you now, but I think this is very troubling, isn't it? It's kind of frightening in its own way. But some things may make sense of it. For example, let's look at the overall narrative. Let's ask the question, why does God test Abraham? Well, early on we have the call and the obedience, right? Go, and Abraham goes. And we have the promise and a lot of patience. I'll make you into a great nation, and he waits 25 years for the fulfillment of this. We get the impatience along the way and the improper fulfillment. He was impatient with the promise of God, and he tried to work it by his own power, and we get the Ishmaelites. And so now God's fulfilled the promise through Isaac, and we're left with a question. What is Abraham trusting in at this point? Is it still his power or is it God's power? Is he so excited to have this child after so long in his old age that maybe his hope is resting on the child rather than on the God who gave him the child? And so Abraham failed once before to trust in God's power relative to the promise. Will he fail this time as well? And so in the story of the sacrifice of Isaac, we have all the hallmarks of faith we've just been discussing in these lessons. God speaks, Abraham listens once again. Go and sacrifice, and Abraham went right away. Um, He doesn't describe a conversation with him and Sarah. Sarah, Abraham, where are you going? To sacrifice our child? (laughs) That's a very absent moment here, early in the morning perhaps. It says, we talked about trusting in God's power when the outlook is bleak. I don't know if there's anything more bleak than being asked to lay your child's life down, is there? But Abraham continues to trust. He shows himself faithful. And this time, Abraham's faith does not fail because he entrusts everything to the Lord, even to the point of not bringing along an extra lamb, just in case, just in case God changes his mind. He doesn't hedge his bets. And in the end, Abraham is vindicated because he entrusts the whole outcome of the promise of God to God. And I want to suggest that this is such an exalted and such a holy moment. It's the kind of thing that you just want to avert your eyes from. I, don't, I can't look at this. This is faith beyond any of us has been asked to give. I've got some questions. Will God ask me to do this? The answer is no. No, he will not. And there's a few reasons. 
One of the reasons is because the sacrifice of Isaac was a foreshadowing of what God would do in offering Jesus on our behalf. Isaac has stayed, and at the last minute, Genesis 22, 7 and 8, it says that God, Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. Isaac asked this question, Dad, where's the lamb? And Abraham said, it's God himself will provide. And Abraham speaks better than he knows, because God himself would become the lamb who dies willingly on our behalf, another place to turn our faces from. So the reason, first reason, is because this foreshadows what God is going to do himself. And the second reason is because Jesus has offered himself willingly and there is never again a need for sacrifice. Sacrifice has been abolished because Jesus gave his life for our sakes on the cross. No more sacrificing. From the exaltations of these moments, I'm going to go to something pretty banal. One of my friends had a neighbor who thought sacrifice was still a go. And so one time he got a whole sheep and he offered it as a burnt offering in his back garden. And they burnt the whole thing. My friend said it smelled so bad <laughs> the whole time. And it's absurd. We don't sacrifice anymore. This is why all these people who talk about rebuilding the temple, let's get some money so we can rebuild the temple in Israel. Sacrifice is done, folks. Once and for all. Jesus on the cross. It's over. Second question for you this morning. Will God ask me to give up something I love for the sake of testing my faith? The answer is maybe. Maybe he will. Does that thing stand between you and God? Is there something between you and the Almighty? Or maybe does God have something else he wants to put in your hands and you're clutching onto this and it needs to be removed so you could do these things? Uh, let me tell you a brief story about my life. Um, many, many years ago, I was in a prayer meeting uh, with my church, and uh, we were praying about our future and praying about provision. We were very poor, and you know, we didn't have a lot of hope on the horizon, not a lot of um, financial future for us at that time. And in that prayer meeting, I heard God speak to me. Uh, it was pretty abrupt and pretty clear. And in the context of praying about how am I going to provide for my wife and my kids, he said, right. I thought, well, that's an odd thing to hear in this moment. And it was in that response I said, okay, I'll, I'll write. And in obedience, I began writing. <clears throat> so I started blogging, and I wrote a book on prayer, of all things. And I continued to write and continued to work. And um, was there provision forthcoming from this? No. No. Nothing came of it. So I was stuck waiting. I had a promise, right, in the context of provision, and I had no fulfillment of that promise. So um, this is in the era when people continued to read blogs. Remember when blogs were a thing? Okay, this is back then. Uh, people were still reading, and if you had to share and promote and get your news out there and start to kind of engage with people, and I was doing the work I thought I was supposed to be doing to get my stuff out there because I thought, well, God's promised this thing. I need to do my part of the process, don't I? And I got to a place where I began to experience some real, real frustration and sadness with the fact not only that it wasn't working, but also with the fact of like the hostility of the environment and what was going on and my sense of despair about uh, Christian thinking in the world. And in a moment of extreme sadness and extreme just kind of despair, I was praying to the Lord again, and he whispered another word to me. He said the name Hagar. And I thought, that's a weird word to hear. But immediately I knew what he meant. He meant, Jeremy, I made you a promise, but you're trying to make it happen on your own power. You're trying to conceive a child of your success by means of your own effort, and you can't. You gotta send it away. And that was painful. I was invested in creating some stuff, and I had to send it away. I had to kill it and let it go. 
And so I can say with some confidence that I am prohibited by the Spirit of God from branding and selling myself in any way. Oh, how relieving that is now. But it was a painful moment then. Now, am I a successful author? Has God fulfilled it by no means? <laughs> I'm a nobody. And that's okay. I'm trying to be obedient. Am I still writing? Yes. Am I still trying to listen to the Lord and obey him in all things? Yes. Am I expecting one day to make a ton of money off my books? No. That's not the point. But I'm trying to be faithful. Third and final question as we close. Will God test my faith? Maybe you're thinking this right now. Will God test my faith? The answer is, you bet. You bet. He will test your faith. He tests it first in obedience. He's going to call you. Are you going to follow? He's going to whisper things to you. Are you going to do them? He's going to test it second in faithfulness. Will you stick with his promises through thick and thin? Are you going to hold on to the promise? Hold on to what you know of God, even when circumstances look grim and dire. That's what it means to become faithful. And it's a test. And he's going to test it third in the idols of our power. Are we willing to trust him and not our own efforts, our own moxie, our own know-how to make this stuff work? Is that how it's going to go? I've got a final warning as we come to the end. Some of you have just heard about the sacrifice of Isaac, the offering of something so extreme and so valuable and so unthinkable, and that you then take stock of your life and you let yourself off the hook off the real sacrifices God asks you to make because they're so much lesser. Oh, I don't have to give, sell everything and go into the mission field like our brother Paul's about to do. God's not asking me to do that so I can cling to the little baby Isaac's little baby I'm, I'm holding on over here, right? Some of you are holding on to little baby Isaacs. You don't want to let him go. Like, some of you have a baby Isaac who's your mistress. Some of you have a baby Isaac that's a grudge that you've been holding for years. And God is saying, I need you to let it go. I want you to kill it. Some of you have a baby Isaac that's your financial portfolio. You love the number in your account. And he sees and knows that that love stands between you and obedience to him. It's not the money, it's the love that's wrong. Whatever that baby Isaac is, don't let the extremity, the extremeness of Isaac's, of the sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22, keep you from obedience to the lesser but still murderous loves we have in our lives. So don't neglect the Isaac of your favorite sin. God is asking us to make sacrifices. He is testing our faith in a variety of ways. And today, as all days, we have a chance to obey him afresh. So I'm going to invite our worship team to come back up. I'm going to point to our prayer ministers. So this morning we have Clive and uh, Debbie Harvey, and they're going to be over here. Um, at the St. George's exit to pray with you. We have time through a couple songs now to lift up the Lord and to quiet our hearts and to maybe respond in faith. Would you stand and let me pray with you before we sing? Lord Jesus, um, 
you call us to follow you and to believe in you and to trust you. And if it's by our own power and by our own effort, Lord, we fail. And we need you more than we need our favorite sins. And we need you more than we need success in the moment. And we need your strength to stay faithful even when everything looks bleak. So would you today by your spirit draw close to these your people? And strengthen us to loosen the grip on our favorite sins. Move us with fresh trust today. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.